Milor Vous asseoir à ma table Il fait si froid dehors Ici c'est confortable Dans le Paris de Notre-Dame De Notre-Dame de Paris Bien le ciel de Paris s'envole une chanson. Oh, bah, oh, t'es pour parler de l'homme popé. You're listening to the Sill Podcast. Perspectives on art and technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 109 Transcendent Tunes. No. Je ne regrette rien. The Little Sparrow's Anthem. Non, rien de rien. <laughs> okay, Harry. <laughs> Give it a break. I want to hear Edith Piaf. All right. Non, rien de rien. Non, je ne regrette rien. No, absolutely nothing. No, I regret nothing. Not the good things that have happened, nor the bad. It's all the same to me. No, absolutely nothing. No, I regret nothing. It's paid, swept away, forgotten. I don't care about the past. I set fire to my memories. My troubles, my pleasures, I don't need them anymore. I've swept away past loves with their trembling, swept away forever. I'm starting over. No, absolutely nothing. No, I regret nothing. Not the good things that have happened, nor the bad. It's all the same to me. No, absolutely nothing. No, I regret nothing. Because my life, because my joy, today, it begins with you. What a fantastic way to kick off the podcast, Harry. Thank you. This is the story of Edith Piaf. Oui, oui. Tragedy right from the beginning, from her birth. Yeah. For those who don't know her, she was one of the great torch singers of the 20th century, really a national heroine of France, artistically, except for during the war years, there was some questions about her collaboration, if yes or no, with the Germans, with which the German. we'll get to. Right, right. But uh, a tragic life, a very hard life that was reflected in her songs. Well, she was born into a family, and uh, however unhealthy and unstable it seemed, it was also a family that was kind of internationally diverse. Yeah. Rooted in music and performance. Mm-hmm. Her uh, father was an acrobat, apparently. Yeah, from Normandy. And her mother was a singer, Chanteuse. Chanteuse, who was born in Italy. Right. So, at birth, her name was Edith Giovanna Gassion. That was her birth name. Right. The name Giovanna was from her mother's side. Right. Mm-hmm. A mother who abandoned her baby, Edith, mm-hmm. after a year. Yes. Gone. So now the father has to care for this child, and he puts her in the care of her mother's mother, the maternal grandmother. For about a year before he actually enlists in the First World War. That's right. And then he transfers her to his own grandmother, <laughs> who who's, was, running a, who's running a brothel. She was a madam in a brothel mm. in Paris. And this little girl is essentially raised by prostitutes. That's right. In this strange environment, men coming and going, mm-hmm. all of that going on. And if that wasn't enough, at the age of three, she goes blind. She's blind from keratitis, which is an inflammation of the cornea, for those who don't know. For four years. Very serious condition, mm-hmm. not easily cured. Mm-hmm. And so what happens after about four years of this blindness, apparently some of the prostitutes get some money together and they take her to a pilgrimage. Shh, religious to pilgrimage. Pilgrimage to the um, altar of Saint Therese in Lisieux. And 
Miracle of miracles, she regains her sight. At the age of seven. Yeah. One of the many mysteries of Edith Piaf. Mm -hmm. Well, going back even further, the legend of her birth is that she was born on the pavement in front yeah. of where they lived. And that was disproved. I mean, she was born in a hospital. Mm -hmm. On a cold winter day on December 19, 1915. Yep. But her life was filled with these enigmatic question marks. And there's already two of them in her early life. And then she becomes a teenager and starts to hit the streets singing. She and a very good friend of hers hit the streets. They did little jobs. They sang for money in uh, the Pigalle area of Paris, which is a bit of a seedy area. And, um, and she actually falls in love at the age of 16. That's right. That's right. With a man named Louis Dupont. And has a child by him at the age of 17. Right. Marcel was her name, mm -hmm. a daughter. And of course, just the way it was done to her, she's unable to juggle the demands of motherhood. Yep. And her street performing lifestyle. Neglects the child. Yes. Uh, two years into the baby's life, Baby she contracts dies. meningitis and dies. Incredible. Right from birth here she is, 17 years old. A baby's dead in her life. Uh, she's on the streets. Literally a child herself. Very little prospects. Mm -hmm. And then she's discovered. At the age of 20. age of 20. Yeah, 1935. So after this hard scrabble life in the streets, she's discovered in the Pigalle area by Louis Leplay, mm -hmm. who is uh, the owner of the club Le Guernies near the Champs-Élysées. Right. right. And he takes her kind of under his wing and encourages her to sing on the stage of his club, even though she's petrified. And he organizes her debut evening, her dress, you have to wear black. And which she which black. is what she was noted for her entire life. It became her signature dress. Right. He invited Maurice Chevalier, some of the lights of French mm. entertainment. Mm. Uh, the band leader that night is Django Reinhardt, the, the incredible Django Reinhardt. And then, yes, she starts to gain popularity, and he, he kind of renames her La Môme Piaf, which meant... The Little Sparrow. The Little Sparrow, which became her kind of pseudonym forever. Mm -hmm. She was known as that. And she starts basically on her career. Well, we didn't talk about her height. She's tiny. Thing. She was a Barely four thing. foot ten. Four ten. And she only weighed about 40 kilos. Yeah. Which is like 90 pounds. A tiny little thing, mm -hmm. right? But with a powerhouse of a voice, an incredible voice and an incredible ability to bring her emotions into her songs. And while you're talking about that, just as a sideline here, she's very reminiscent in, in many ways of Judy Garland. Judy Garland is also four foot eleven and weighs roughly hundred yeah, pounds. Yeah, interesting parallels there. Died right? at forty-seven as well. Died at the same age as her. Also, a difficult life filled with sort of alcoholism and other addictions. Mm -hmm. Very parallel. Very interesting. And both geniuses in their own way. And within seven or ten years of each other. In fact, they're born seven years apart. Right. Yeah. Fascinating connection. So she starts to gain her fame and become recognized, and she sort of gets into the habit, she says, because of her days in the brothel, of kind of saying yes to men <laughs> very easily. And she has this succession Series of, of, affairs. of lovers and affairs, and mm -hmm. after uh, Louis Le Play was murdered that club owner, yes. a year after. Association with her. mobster activity. Yeah, apparently. And she was suspect, but mm -hmm. they cleared her name. So she found this other fellow, 
as it was it Robert Asso, was that his first name? A-S-S-O. A-S-S-O, to help rehabilitate her career. And he gives her the name Edith Piaf. Correct. He just sort of, that's now your stage name. And he kind of protects her and kind of coddles her and that sort of thing. And he's her lover, of course, as well, right? Mm-hmm. She appears on stage in Jean Cocteau's play, Le Bel Indifférent, in 1940. War's broken out. Yeah. So now we're... France is occupied in 1940 by the Germans. Right. So very serious time in the country and in Paris. Yet, she continues to sing. And in fact, the Germans are very impressed with her voice and they encourage her to keep singing. And in fact, they invite her to go to Berlin Mm -hmm. to sing and she does. Entertaining the SS and the Gestapo as well. Yeah, which brought upon her the name of collaboratrice, collaboratrice. Right, there were questions. A collaborator. So she was accused of that. But at the same time, members of the resistance came to her defense and said, no, no, wait a minute. She also went to uh, camps in Germany to sing for the French prisoners of war, right. which raised their spirits and their morale. Mm-hmm. And she helped some of them escape, apparently. Yes. Another mysterious question mark. Did she? Didn't she? And while you're on that subject, we go back to when she was born. She was born during the First World War. Yeah, right. Edith, or Edith. Yes. It was named after Edith Cavill, a British nurse who cared for the wounded, primarily British and French but also some German soldiers in Brussels in German-occupied Belgium during World War I. Yeah, right. She was also credited with saving the lives of about 200 soldiers Yes. by helping them escape to the neutral Netherlands in violation of German military law, for which she was eventually executed by the Germans just two months before Edith Piaf's birth. Yes, interesting. And it's also during this period that she writes the lyrics to her most well-known song, La Vie en Rose. That was in the mid to late 40s. And this Je ne regrette rien came later, 1960. Only two or three years before her death. Before for her death. Which is That's perfect right. if you think about the songs, as you mm-hmm. mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, when you were giving the English translation. Yes. It fits perfectly. Right. But there's a certain irony in that too, isn't there? How so? The song is actually about not regretting. Yeah. It's almost the anti-torch song song, Mm -hmm. torch song, (laughs) right? Right. Uh, Where it's not regretting anything in the past, leaving the past behind, because Mm -hmm. there's a new love right here today in front of me. And this is a new beginning. So there's hopefulness and positivity here in a torch song from someone who is a very dramatic torch singer. Now, when she went to the United States after Mm -hmm. the war to try to make her career grow there. Yes. She was not welcomed. Not initially. Initially, because they expected something else. They didn't expect this tiny little sparrow to come on the stage and sing these very sad, sorrowful, dramatic, melodramatic almost Mm -hmm. songs. They weren't used to it until a critic came to her aid and said, no, 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 you American audiences, you don't get it. You don't appreciate it. She is brilliant. This is a great singer. And it turned. Mm Mm-hmm. Suddenly she was popular. Well, a lot of people were also impressed that such a diminutive lady could sing so powerfully. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just her um, actual vocals. It was her sense of emotion. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people said that they were moved when she sang. Yeah, and apparently one of the interesting things about her is that she'd get some of her songwriters, her composers together at her apartment. Yes. And they'd kind of party the night away. 
mm-hmm. drinking and carrying on, and she would share stories about her life. And the composers would get inspirations from those stories. And at the end of the night, she'd lock them in a room mm-hmm. and say, okay, create something, write some songs for me. Mm-hmm. And before we get to the song itself, yeah. which was not written by her, right. uh, we should just mention the love of her life, the boxer. Yes. This was in the 40s as well. Uh, Marcel Serdin was the middleweight champion of the world, boxing. Yes. And they were deeply in love. And tragically, he was killed in an airplane On crash. his way to New York. Yeah. He died yeah. in the Azores. That's right. Which was crushing for her. By all accounts, he was the love of her life, regardless of all these other men who came and went. Mm-hmm. And none of these men she married, by the way, until later on. Exactly. The last two she married. Box, box. Tell us the story behind this song. It's a wonderful story. I went to Edith's house and she said to me, Listen, young man, don't worry anymore, I'm going to record this song. I'm going to make a comeback at the Olympia with it. This song will be a huge success and it will stay with you all your life. She was not only a divine voice and a great performer, but she could sense what was coming. Because after this song, thanks to Edith, I toured the world with a visitor's pass titled Charles Dumont, Edith Piaf's composer. I could never thank her enough. What made this song so unique? I think it came just at the right moment. People were saying that she wasn't going to sing anymore, that her memory had gone. She said it herself. This song brought her back to life. And for the public, it was Edith's resurrection. And that's why she shouted to the whole world, I don't regret a thing. Good things, bad things. I don't care. I sang, I was happy, and I brought happiness to others. I regret nothing. Box, box. Well, after kind of unleashing Je ne regret rien on the stage of the Olympia Club in Paris, which was a major club, and her kind of her signature location, mm-hmm. and where she recorded a lot of the songs from those performances, she unleashed it in 1960. And then three years later, deep decline because she'd had several car accidents. Three very serious ones after 1951. Yeah, which compromised her physical system well, she deeply. Was, she was kind of a wreck. And then uh, they gave her morphine. She got addicted to the morphine, alcohol addiction. So basically her liver gave out. I mean, everything fell apart. She lost tons of weight. She could barely walk. And if anybody's ever seen the movie La Vie en Rose, great movie. starring Marion Cotillard, uh, that scene at the end where they have to practically carry her onto the stage, she is so weak. Mm -hmm. And yet when she opens her mouth, it's powerful again. It's power song coming out of this dying woman. Like her last burst. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's tremendously powerful. Marion won the Academy Award Award for that. 2007, if anyone hasn't seen the film. It's a great, great film. Great Mm -hmm. film. So her last husband, Sarapo, the Greek hairdresser fella, takes her down to the south of France to her place down there to kind of try to recuperate, to get some strength back mm-hmm. after surgery for ulcers. That's some right. more pressure on her body. Mm-hmm. Well, she dies down there on the 9th of October, but because she's so connected to the city of Paris, he drove her body up to the city of Paris 
and on the 10th of October announced that she had died. So people would think she died in Paris. That's right. So there's, again, this mysterious, yes. when did she die? The 9th or the 10th? Where? Well, she'd become a national icon. Oh, totally. So all these considerations. And again, just a minor sideline coincidence. She died on John Lennon's birthday. <laughs> right. <laughs> Interesting, eh? In 1963. Yeah. October 1963, when the Beatles were just beginning. Right. That's fascinating. And incidentally, she was buried at Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, a, a very famous cemetery that houses Jim Morrison's Jim Morrison, yeah. crypt and Oscar Wilde. But I'm going to visit Père Lachaise when we go to Paris. That's, in a couple of weeks. That's on our itinerary. So we're going to nice. visit Edith Piaf's uh, gravesite. Nice. There. 100,000 people. Attended the funeral, yeah. 100,000. Yeah. The streets of Paris were filled with people. Traffic was stopped. So she had great influence too. She influenced the careers of Charles Aznavour and Yves Montand, yes. these great French performers in their own right. Yves Montand being a movie icon. Yeah, and of course, a lover of hers, another lover of hers for a mm -hmm. period of time, mm -hmm. right? Well, she did a few songs with Aznavour. Mm -hmm. And wrote some lyrics for him mm -hmm. too. And let's speak about that for a second because... The song that we're talking about today, which yeah. is... No, rien de rien. It's no, je ne regrette rien. I, like the title. Lead, I love to leave the pronunciations to you, Harry. Well, her pronunciation is brilliant, too. Anyway, carry on. But the song itself, she did not take to it initially. The composer... Yes. The composer's names were Charles Dumont, mm -hmm. with lyrics by Michel Vauquer. And they apparently brought this song to her in her apartment. Mm -hmm. She was very irritable that day and upset and really didn't want to see them and didn't want to hear anything. And they she said- She was not welcoming she, at all. She said, okay, one yeah. song, what is it? And Charles sang the song and she said, sing it again. <laughs> and, and, and she immediately said, this is going to be my signature song. Yeah, yeah she knew yeah. it was an incredible yeah. song. So yeah, the song itself, here's the thing I take away from the song. It's barely two minutes long. Mm-hmm. How many songs are two minutes long and as powerful? Have that much impact, that? yeah. Have the impact. So that's one thing. And then the structure of the song. Now, the Beatles did this in a kind of a novel way, which hadn't been happening very much, and that is they put the chorus first. Right. And then jump into the verse and back to the chorus. Well, they do the same here. Mm -hmm. They start with the chorus. No, rien, rien. That's the chorus. And then they go into a verse. So chorus times two, mm -hmm. two verses in the middle, chorus times two. Yeah, they changed the it. Very simple, two, two, two. Also in French, yeah. the emphasis is always on the last syllable. Yes, yes. So, so a lot of artists who followed her and took this song and did it in English yeah. was not quite the same effect. It's hard to translate that kind of song into English with the accent, as you say. You know, in French, it's bureau, portmanteau, accent on the last syllable. In right. English, it's bureau. Right. Bureau, so first syllable. Translations are a bit clunky in general. Mm -hmm. uh, but she loved the song and she released it, as we said, in 1960 on the stage of the Olympia. She actually dedicated the song to the French Foreign Legion, who adopted the song as theirs and paraded out at every opportunity that they can. Mm -hmm. uh, the other beautiful thing about the song, which I find very compelling, is, and it makes the emotional impact that much more, is if you think about the rhythm, if you listen to the rhythm of the chorus, it's a march. Yes. Sounds almost like the national anthem. Yeah. And then that gives way to the verses in the middle, which are very relaxed. 
Right? And in the second verse, it ends with la da 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 dum dum da dum back into the march. No. Right? So it's march and then this relaxed and then the march. So that rhythm really gives you this strange sort of up and down and up and down. And I find it very powerful the mm-hmm. way it was composed by the composer, right? Charles Dumont. Yes, and of course, her particular singing style, because they said specifically they wrote it for her. Yes, which many of her songwriters did. Now, she also probably contributed some of the lyrics, but mm-hmm. apparently she wrote a lot of lyrics for different songs, etc., so, yeah, it's high on the charts, number one in France. It peaked at number one in France, in England, uh, in Quebec, of course, of all places. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's not like it was one of the greatest sellers of all time. But I think it's transcendent, just for all the reasons we've mentioned, that it's kind of the anti-torch song, torch song. It's brilliantly structured. It's short and powerful. She united a nation with it. Yeah, and embodies her life and her philosophy of life, Mm -hmm. and maybe the philosophy of the French spirit. Mm -hmm. And it just happens to coincide with a period of history that really connects that, because that whole tragic kind of feel yeah. Uh, the sadness is in conjunction with the times that this music was really mm-hmm. made famous. You know, yeah. she actually lived through, although being very young in the beginning, two, two world wars. wars two know? wars. Yeah. That's right. And to her credit, she was able to find some of that hopefulness. And I think in some ways, falling into the arms of these men... In mm-hmm. a serial fashion, you know, she wasn't sort of uh, uh, promiscuous. Promiscuous. She wasn't promiscuous in that no. way, but in a sense needed to have a man in her life. Uh, in well, as she form. describes, you mentioned earlier in the podcast as well, she had been raised by prostitutes yeah. in an environment where she was used to seeing women in a much more passive kind of situation. Yeah. And she assumed that, as she said herself, almost naively. Mm-hmm that she felt that you gave yourself to men easily. That's right. That's right. And actually, the most interesting thing is on her deathbed, her last words mm-hmm. were... Every damn thing you do in this life, you have to pay for. <laughs> yeah, karma's going to get you, Yeah, basically, is what she's saying. But even that statement reflects yeah. the kind of thinking... Yeah. You know, it's that heavy. Well, look at even after she died, mm-hmm. the priest didn't want to do a memorial for her because of the way the association. he saw her life as being this sordid kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Sinful. It, was, it took 50 years or something before they actually had a proper memorial for Edith Piaf. That's right. Right? They finally kind of forgave her, if you like. final performance was L'Homme de Berlin. Which uh, translates to the Man of Berlin. Man of Berlin. That was in April 1963. Of course, she died six months later. Yeah. That was her final recorded song. Yeah. Here's another instance where you can't separate the song from the artist. The song is the artist. The artist is the song. You know, a lot of singers, you can separate the song. They sing it well, but it's mm-hmm. not their life, really. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of imitating it in a way. This was a deep connection to who she was. That song was who Edith Piaf was. Yeah, it was representative of her and her life. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which to me makes it one of the transcendent tunes above La Vie en Rose. 
or yes. the other songs that she sang and made famous. Mm-hmm. You know? In fact, La Vian Rose is her most famous song. Yeah, it is. But I think this one probably in many ways has a greater notoriety mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. One, at what stage of her life it occurred, and then it's a perfect kind of uh, overview yeah. of her entire life. It's like the climax because mm-hmm. she died three years later, so kind of she was already beginning the downhill slide physically and emotionally, I guess. And so it came at the moment in her life when she had to look back. She probably realized in some level that she was dying. Mm-hmm. She must have realized it. Like you said, uh, three serious car accidents, addictions, yeah, ulcers. ulcers. The end was in sight. Yeah, yeah. Kind of ironic in a sense because she ended on a really high note. Yeah, sure. With that song. It's an incredible life, an incredible song, transcendent life. I almost say it that way too. Yeah. But it isn't just the song. And for those who don't know her, it's really well worth going onto YouTube and listening to her music because yeah, it's just incredible. And if you haven't seen the film, yeah. the 2007 La Vie en Rose, yep. highly recommend it. Go out and see it. There you go. One more transcendent tune on the shelf. On the shelf. Uh, what are we doing next? We're going to be talking about branding, I think, uh, in the next, uh, next podcast, podcast, right? Yes. yes. Branding. Who out there is branded? Have you branded yourself recently? No, I haven't, but I know many who have. <laughs> <laughs> it's in my seared on my well, arm. Well, you know, the word branding can be taken in different ways. Well, we're going to take know, it in many different, different ways. Different ways, yeah. yeah. I mean, tattoo can be a form of branding. That's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about that in the next podcast. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, leave us a comment, audio or visual. Please visit uh, the com. There's a button. Click on it. Leave your voice. You don't even have to type anything. Yeah. We'd really appreciate hearing back from you. Ciao. Ciao, Harry. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Car ma vie.